0: My sermon this morning is based on the parable of the dishonest steward in Luke 16. Uh, And I'm I'm excited about the parable because I failed to understand it for years. And I could not understand why this parable was in the Bible. And I felt really good (laughs) when Jackie came to me this morning and said, I hope you're gonna explain what this parable is about because I don't get it. So I feel that I I chose the right uh, parable. So I'm gonna start off uh, reading it. If you have have it in your bulletin, it's Luke 16 verses one through nine. Now it's Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking the management away away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, "A 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your pen, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, "A 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So if you remember, Doug taught, three sermons out of the prodigal son, which immediately precedes this parable. And then his last sermon was on giving. Um, So the, the, the parable of the prodigal son shows us, among other things, that God is recklessly extravagant in his love, in the expenditure of divine grace. He is recklessly extravagant. Now, this parable of the unfaithful steward was intended as a loving rebuke of the Pharisees who were rejecting, I'm sorry, the parable of the prodigal son was intended as a loving rebuke of the Pharisees who were rejecting Jesus' love and teaching. They were self-righteous. They were, as a group the older brother who focused on their outward conduct, but whose hearts were very far from God. Elsewhere, Jesus referred to them as whited sepulchers, clean on the outside, but full of death and filth on the inside. In looking at that parable, I became intrigued by the immediately succeeding parable, which is the parable of the dishonest servant. And it is one of the most puzzling of Jesus's parables. That's what my sermon is about. At the end, if you still don't understand it, just tell me that you do because it'll make me feel better. So let's get into this sermon. Now, it begins with the phrase, he also said to his disciples, so he's talking first to the Pharisees and the prodigal son. And after he talks to them, he turns to his disciples, which is a larger group than the 12. And he is now speaking a parable directed at them. And the power of this parable is right after the parable, there is this statement in the Bible that Jesus knew the Pharisees that they, are, that they loved money. They loved money. So in other words, after spending considerable time rebuking the Pharisees for their legalism and spiritual pride, Jesus turns to his disciples to instruct them. Uh, And this is important because at the end of the parable, it says that the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus. So he he talked about the parable of the prodigal son. Then he taught the parable of the dishonest manager. And it said immediately after this that the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for what he said. So why did Jesus commend the dishonest steward? In order to begin, we have to first understand two different ways in which the steward was dishonest. First, and most obviously, the steward was skimming off the top. He was stealing from his boss and stuffing his own pockets. We see this scenario played out frequently in the movies about mafia or other gangs, where one of the trusted lieutenants is caught stealing from the mafia boss on the side. The penalty is almost always a brutal death. Well, the second aspect, is that in planning for his retirement, the dishonest manager goes to everyone who owes his boss money and starts reducing their bills. Remarkably, Jesus commends the steward's behavior. At first, reading this parable seems to turn our sense of right and wrong on its head. The Old Testament gives us a perfect example of a good steward, and that's Joseph in the Old Testament. When Joseph was the chief steward at Potiphar's house, everything that he touched was blessed. And Potiphar's wherewithal increased because of the wise management of Joseph. Joseph was a type of Christ, which makes the parable of the unfaithful steward even more puzzling. So why did Jesus commend this obviously bad guy? The dishonest steward knew he was going to be both unemployed and unemployable. He knew that there were not many things he could do for employment. He said, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So what did he do? He immediately started planning for his future using his master's resources to plan for his future. So I wanna make three main points with you today, three main points. Number one, we need to seek and work toward the treasures of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6, a passage I know many of you are familiar with, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So salvation is a gift of grace. The rewards and treasures are heaven, are gifts of grace, but they are spiritual rewards that are earned. So let me tell you this story, this, uh, Uh, A rich woman dies. She's a good woman, goes to heaven. And in heaven, she's got this beautiful, beautiful house with a a little wading pool out front and a, a nice view. And then a little later, her maid dies and comes to heaven. And the maid sees her former employee and says, oh, I would like to invite you to my house for lunch. So the uh, woman goes to her former maid's house and the house is like two stories. It's like 15,000 square feet. It has an Olympic sized pool, outdoor patio, grill, jacuzzi, the whole bit. And she is really upset about this. So she goes to Peter and, who's manning the, the gates of heaven and she complains about the size of her house compared to the size of her maid's house. And Peter said, whoa, 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 don't get upset with me. We can only build with the materials that you send ahead of you. We need spiritual wisdom to labor for the things that matter. The master, it says, commended his his dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, Shrewdness in the Hebrew means to act wisely, and it's contrasted with foolishness or a fool. The fool is the opposite of the wise man, and the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the wise man takes God seriously and seeks to live in a manner that pleases God. So in ancient Hebrew culture, the fool is an ungodly man. You and I may say foolish or fool someone all the time in our culture, but that was a real pejorative term in ancient Hebrew. To call somebody a fool is to say they were ungodly pagan, perhaps worthy of death. It was a high insult. So here Jesus is speaking to an ancient Jewish audience, deliberately using the word shrewd, so that the audience would make a ready association with godliness, which would turn them on their heads because the man who was described as shrewd was unscrupulous. Jesus' audience would be puzzled and intrigued by Jesus' use of the word shrewd for so dishonest a man. The ancient Jewish audience would find it difficult to commend a man who was so clearly unethical. They thought that they understood Jesus until he gave this parable, and now they are not sure that they understand him at all. They pretty certainly understood the parable of the prodigal son. The Pharisees certainly did, but they were probably flummoxed by the parable of the dishonest steward. Part of the reason they would have been flummoxed is that they felt their future was already taken care of. They were part of the chosen people. They were children of the covenant. God had already assured their future. There was nothing for them to do than other than be observant Jews. But Jesus is telling them much more is involved. Something very different is involved. Jesus is telling his listeners to invest in what is important. As Doug said last Sunday, he was telling them to make the main thing the main thing. Spend your life for the eternal, not the temporal. This is especially important for Christians because they will face intense persecution. Only a focus focus on the eternal will see them through their sufferings. Now, Jesus who's able to look down the corridors of time, knows that in his disciples, many are going to face intense persecution in a short amount of time. And we know this from the history of the disciples, of the apostles. All of them met violent deaths except the apostle John, but he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified upside down, I mean, they had horrible deaths. Jesus had, and not only that, we don't necessarily understand the importance of the role of the Pharisees and scribes in ancient Jewish society. So just imagine that Jesus is speaking in the Senate and we're gathered around him. And in the Senate, the congressmen are all looking at Jesus. They hear him speak and they ridicule him. The disciples are looking at each other, kind of understanding that they're going to be sent out and the people who are the paragons of virtue and power in their society are ridiculing their leader. And Jesus knows that his disciples are going to have to withstand intense pressure to conform to the world and to deny Jesus. How does he equip them to do this? How does he fire a hope in them that in the face of intense persecution and dislike, they will press forward for the prize of a high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I hate being ridiculed. And I don't want to be the one who walks into a room and people go. Pss, 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 pss. And that's just the light part of what they were going to face. So Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to show you how to ground, grind, ground yourself into the eternal so that the temporal things you face will not matter. Tell you a quick little story. My mother, bless her heart, loved casinos. Her son hates casinos. But when I would visit my mother in Chicago, I knew that the one thing that she really, really wanted to do was to go to the casinos with me. And so I would pretend. I would say, hey, how about tomorrow? Let's go to the casino. And inside, I'm going, groan. She said, well, you really want to go? I said, yeah, let's let's go. So I would drive her to the casino and she would be so happy. She played those one-armed bandits. And my mother had the gift of tongues because she would speak to the slot machines. She would say, come on now, don't let me down like you did last, come on, you gotta be good to me. And she would gently stroke it on the side in a circular motion. Well, uh, I work hard for my money. The last thing I wanna do is spend it at a casino. And i got three kids I'm putting through college. So my mother would say, here, here is this sum of money. Take it and play. So the first point of the three that I'm making is that we need to seek heavenly treasures. Second, we need to make and value true friendships. This is important. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples and he's already told them, many of you are gonna lose your families because of your witness for me. He's got to get them to look at a different family and a different set of relationships. He tells you in the parable, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus is telling us to focus on relationships that are based on Jesus Christ. Relationships based on Christ will last into eternity. Jesus is celebrating relationships based on love for him and his gospel. The people who have meant the most to me and who mean the most to me are those who have helped me walk with Christ. I don't mean to embarrass Doug, but you know, Doug was one of those people along with Dick Kaufman that God put in my life to keep me focused on Jesus Christ. And when I first came to Harbor, I thought I understood the gospel. But after about six months, I realized I didn't understand the gospel at all. And I had been a Christian for 15 years. The disciples need to know this because they will soon be hated and hunted. They will be tortured and murdered because of their witness for Christ. They need friendships that will sustain them through their ordeals and into eternity. When Jesus sent out the 60 or 66, he told them to go in twos because he knew that each would need to support the other. It's better to be with twos, threes, that small community or a larger community to help bolster our courage in the face of ugly opposition. They needed friendships that will sustain them through their ordeals and into eternity. There is the story of the missionary, a missionary who had been in Africa for two decades and finally returned home for retirement uh, on a ship and he came into a port in New York City. And he and his wife were surprised to see throngs of people at the pier. And they thought, wow, somebody finally recognizes what we've done. But before they could get off the boat or ship, there was another man, and it turned out to be a very famous politician. And the people were there to celebrate the politicians return and the husband became very despondent. And the wife turned to him and said, sweetheart, don't worry. This is not our home. We are not home yet. So Jesus is telling us, number one, value the treasures in heaven and labor for them. Two have relationships that are focused on Jesus Christ that will last in eternity. And third, we need to use our resources to help people know and walk with Jesus Christ, and that includes ourselves. Jesus said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Giving from the heart puts us in touch with God's, God's heart. From a material or temporal standpoint, we have three forms of wealth. Material resources like money, a house, food, clothing. Um, personal resources like skills, talents, uh, like, like Chad and Mandy can see. Um, The Gomez family is hosting the Ortiz family in their home for uh, three years, is it? (laughs) And the third one, so we have physical material resources. We have those personal inner resources, and we have time. Those are the three resources we have, all of which are given to us by God. Each of us has these these three resources, and these three resources share the following characteristics. Um, We will run out of all these things. Money will one day cease to be useful to us because we're dead. Our personal resources will be useless because we're dead. And there will be no more temporal time because now we're in eternity. So as Christians, you know, we own nothing. We are only stewards. All our resources, no matter how humble or extravagant, belong to God who has given them to us as stewards to use for our eternity. The friends we make are those with whom we share the gospel, those for whom we pray, those with whom we live out the gospel, and those with whom we celebrate the gospel in community like church. The Bible says that God places the lonely in families. This is not to dismiss our biological families, but is to put the sense of community and family into an eternal and spiritual perspective. Jesus is looking at his disciples who will have nothing. None of them will be rich and telling them to spend the resources God has given them for kingdom purposes, grow in Christ, share the gospel, live the gospel before others, celebrate the gospel in community, help people know Jesus. Jesus will soon leave them physically. He will be reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus would be physically absent, but these disciples would need to be able to carry on in the face of violent opposition, the same opposition that Jesus himself faced. If they are focused on the opposition, they will just shrivel up and fail. But if they devote themselves to living the gospel and sharing the gospel and celebrating the gospel, they will prevail. Now, here's the beauty of it. Have you seen those Hollywood sets which are very dramatic on the front? and then the camera goes around to the back, and you see that you're just a plywood front with uh, four by fours holding them up on the rear side. That's the material life. And people, there's, there's a bank, it says the Commonwealth Bank, and people are going, and they're making deposits into the Commonwealth Bank. But there's nothing behind it, it's just falling into a pit. Jesus is telling them, Whatever you spend, remember it comes from me, it's not yours, spend it for your eternity. And whether you give away 50 cents or a dollar or $100,000, whether you feed one person a month or you feed, go out and, and you meet homeless other people one night, whatever it is, we are guaranteed a return There is no investment company in the world that will guarantee you a return. And if they say they guarantee it, there will be 12 pages of modifiers. Jesus has no modifiers. He says, I will take your penny, your dollar. I will take your voice and I will make you rich. I want to give you some real life examples three of whom are members of our congregation who are using their resources in keeping with Jesus's instruction in this parable. Remember again, so first a little personal story. I'm only sharing this because it happened so recently. I'm driving home from somewhere and a guy in a pickup truck is right in front of me. And for some reason, and we're both driving slowly, for some reason, he stops and starts backing up at me. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm so shocked that I don't have time, well, my, my brain moves too slowly is to, to hit my horn and he hits my car. Um, and he, he slams on his brakes, he jumps out and he has this horrified look on his face I jump out of my car and I say, I'm blind, I can't see. I say, hey, no, no, don't worry, I'm okay, I'm okay. And so we looked around, there was a little scratch on the front of my car and the license plate holder was just demolished. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I said, hey, it's not a big deal. You know, we all all make mistakes, it's not a problem. I'm not gonna sue, I'm not gonna call your insurance company, we'll take care of it. And you could see him breathe a sigh of relief. And he said, look, I'm going to go to the auto zone in Lemon Grove and get you a new license plate cover. And this was just like 50 yards from our house. I said, okay, well, just follow me home. He followed me home up the drive, and he said, I'll be back in an hour or so with a new license plate. He came back. He had the instead of the plastic license plate cover that I had on it, he had on a nice, he brought a nice, metal cover you can see it on the front of the car now and he said i said i asked him how much did it cost and he said no 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 don't forget it i said no just tell me how much it costs and it was nothing. i said okay and i reached in my wallet and i said i'm giving it, it costs like three dollars four dollars and i gave him 40. And he said why are you doing this i said I want to give you a living demonstration of what grace is from God. You owe me. You're at fault. I could sue you. You're in my debt. But I'm giving my money to you so that you will understand what God's grace is all about. His name was Sergio, and I invited him. Maybe he'll come by for a meal. And I talked with him a little bit about Jesus Christ. I'm trying to use my resources to prepare for my eternity. I'm trying to send ahead of me the stuff that God will use. Now I wanna talk about Laura Cresswell. She's a college math teacher. She was on the search committee. She is teaching math to her young neighbor, Christopher, who's eight because she loves him uh, and wants to bring Christopher into God's kingdom. She teaches him regularly. Christopher now comes to church with Laura. Melissa, Christopher's cousin, wanted what Laura was giving Christopher. So Melissa also comes for math instruction and also attends church every Sunday with Laura and Christopher. They're using, she's using God's resources for her eternity. Candace Coles. Candace, as you know, really is a wayward woman from Texas, but God has done a great work in her life. Uh, In 2017, Candace was crossing the Coronado Bridge. She lives in Coronado when she saw a young man riding a bicycle across the Coronado Bridge. Now, you know that's illegal. Candace uh, thought the young man (laughs) might have been a terrorist because he was wearing a backpack. Uh, But she drove to the bottom of the bridge and waited for him and in true Candace style, scolded him for riding his bike across the bridge. He was German-Swiss. And she said, put your bike in my car. And so he did. And he spoke broken English at the time, but he understood more. His name is Raphael. And she took him to her home, gave him water and a map, and she befriended him for the sake of the gospel. A friendship developed. He was in the United States for three months Candace even brought him to church, and they still correspond. What did she do? She put a bicycle in the back of her car, gave some water and a map. Next, a friend of mine named Dan Russell, who lives in um, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, had been, he and I had been supporting a church or a series of churches in Hyderabad, India. And he was taking a trip with his then teenage son, I think his son was 13, 14 years old, to Hyderabad uh, just to encourage the believers there who were having a huge conference. So Dan called me up before he, I think the day before, two days before he left, and he said, well, what should I do What should I ha- if they ask me to say anything? I said, Dan, just tell them the gospel. It's very simple. We're all sinners. God became flesh, dwelt on earth among us, died on the cross for our sins, and he died because he loves you. Jesus loves you and has taken all your sins upon your, your, himself. All you have to do is believe. That's the gospel they, Don't make it complicated. Just share the gospel. He said, well, they haven't asked me to speak or anything, but I'll I'll have a lot of one-on-one time with some people and I want to know what to say. And I said, just don't make it complicated. Tell them the simple gospel story. So they arrive in Hyderabad and they are taking from the airport directly to a stadium. The stadium is filled. There are like 15,000 people in the stadium. And Dan doesn't notice something and his son, pokes him in the ribs and says, look at the banners. The banners are in um, the language of India, but there was Dan's photograph on a huge banner and somehow they got a picture of his son. His son's face was on another huge banner. And so he comes to realize That he is the speaker. 15,000 people. Now, Dan used his own money to fly out there, took time off from his own business to go out there. All right? He's using his resources for God's purposes. So, all Dan had was one of those little pamphlets, you know, how to know Christ. So he takes out the pamphlet, you know, and he reads each page. And as he reads, there's a translator. He reads translation. He reads, it only takes about 15 minutes because, you know, those pamphlets are really thin. And then uh, most of the people in the audience were Dalits. <laughs> the Dalits are the untouchables. They're the lowest caste system in India. They are treated worse than dogs. And the host asks who would like to receive Christ. And thousands of people fall down crying. If you are hated and despised, if people look down at you as worse than a dog and somebody comes and says to you, God loves you. He came to earth to die on the cross for you. You are important to him. He knows you by name. Dan said he was overwhelmed and after it was all over he was he stepped down off the stage and there was uh, a woman who crawled on her hands and knees to him and kissed his feet because she He had told her about Jesus Christ. (sighs) Jesus is the true faithful steward. Jesus said of the Father, I do always those things that please him. Jesus acted shrewdly. He shared the gospel through his life and his teaching, his miracles, but most importantly, by voluntarily dying on the cross to make the gospel possible. Jesus is the true faithful steward because he used everything he owned, including his life, to save us. He emptied himself out in order to make us full, he died a brutal death so that you and I could live for eternity. He gave up everything he owned so that you and I could have everything he owns. So that on the deed to the universe, it says Jesus Christ, and Connie, and Bobby, and Dana, and Carlos, and Berkeley. All our names are on the deed to heaven because Jesus took all his resources in order to do the will of the Father. So to summarize quickly, Jesus was not commending dishonesty. He was commending the mindset that focuses on the eternity, that what happens later. And let me ask you, how are you focused on eternity? How are you using humble resources in order to know God, to share God, and to walk with God? Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed again and again by your extravagant grace. You are a reckless lover of our souls. You hold nothing back, even giving up your own begotten son that we would know him and live with him in eternity. You have given us everything so that we can build an eternity with you. And we are just so grateful that you are the architect and builder of our faith, that you are our sanctuary, you are the high tower of our salvation. Praise be to you. Amen.